You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. As you're uh, settling back into your seat, I want to draw your attention to one other thing that's in the worship guide today. If you flip to the very uh, last page, the inside page of the worship guide, we have a list of our staff, our ruling elders, and our deacons. And I want to draw your attention to that. Specifically, the the elders and the deacons, these are the the two offices in our church of leaders, servant leaders in our church. And you see that we have currently six elders and six deacons. And sometimes people ask me, well, who decides how many elders and deacons you have? And the answer to that question is you do. The congregation of our church uh, decides that. Uh, About every other year at City Church, we open nominations for these offices. And if you're a member of this church, you can offer someone in nomination to serve in this role. So elders are the men who are kind of the, the spiritual shepherds of our church. They pray and they care for our church and they set the vision and direction of our church. And deacons are the men who are the, the chief servants of the church. So they take care of the church with all of its tangible needs. If you are on the mailing list of the church later this afternoon, you're going to get an email that talks about this process. But for the next three weeks, we'll have an open nomination period. And what I encourage you to do is if there's someone in this church that you know that you think would be a good elder or deacon, first talk to that uh, man and explain that to him and tell them why you think that they're well qualified for that role. And then um, send an email to the session or to me, my um, my email is in the, the worship guide, and, and let me know that. And um, like I said, for the next three weeks, we'll have open nominations, and then for about six months after that, these men will be trained, and um, they will go through a, a process where they discern whether or not this is work that they want to do and can do at this point in their lives. And then the, the end of this process is not only are these men uh, nominated by you, but ultimately they're elected by you. And so none of the leaders in this church Um, are leaders without you saying, I want them to be my leaders. And I think that's an important distinctive of the way that our church is organized. Again, that's a lot, and if you're new here, you may have some questions about that. Please talk to me or talk to someone else that you saw up front here today. But we think it's a really important process um, by which you all identify leaders and servants for the church. All right, I didn't introduce myself. My name's Eric Bonkowski. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And this summer at City Church, the last four months really, we've been talking about being on the road with Jesus. We've been talking about summer road trips. And uh, several years ago, my family took a road trip up to uh, Vermont, which is the, the uh, state that I was born in, and we, we stayed for a week up there. And there was one thing that happened during that week that's left an indelible mark in my memory. Um, Norwich, Vermont, the town I grew up in, is um, right on the Appalachian Trail. And so you'll see, visiting a a store in town, some of the thru-hikers, the people who have hiked the whole length of the trail. Or you'll also see some people who are just doing the trail in sections, maybe for a week at a time. 
trying to accomplish the whole trail across their lifetime. And so while we were up there in Vermont, we were driving, not hiking, we were driving, and um, we saw a, a, a hiker who was headed out to the Appalachian Trail. And, and I could tell that he was brand new at this because he, his clothes were all shiny. You know, he's clean shaven. He had um, new hiking boots on. They were like glistening in the sun. He had his new wool socks on. And he just had this exuberance, this excitement to get out on the trail and to do some hiking. And um, so I, I kind of filed that away. I said, good for him, you know, better him than me. The next day we were driving again, we saw the same guy. And this time he looked kind of, he looked exhausted. He looked defeated. His shirt was already stained with dirt and sweat. He had this fallen face and he was walking in the opposite direction from the, the previous day. And one day in, this guy had already given up. The, the trail had defeated him, and he just looked forlorn. And, and I, I thought it was funny at the time. I was like, wow, he didn't last out, uh, too long out in the wilderness. But the reason it stuck with me is because when I look at that man, I see myself. Not as a hiker, mind you. I would never be so foolish as to do something like that. But as a follower of Jesus, on the path of discipleship, uh, I am so much like him. Start out strong, exuberant, full of energy. I have all the gear. But after a day or a week or a month or a year, I can feel defeated. And I wonder if you identify with that at all. I wonder if that describes part of your path of discipleship, of hearing about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and saying, yes, I'm, I'm in on that. But then life happens. You feel discouraged. You feel beaten down, and it's hard to follow after Jesus on the road. Well, we're going to talk about that dynamic a little bit today as we conclude this series of On the Life, uh, On the Road with Jesus. And we're going to do that by reading the end of Luke chapter 14. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open up and, and follow along in the scripture as I read these words. Uh, these words are also printed in the worship guide, and you're welcome to follow along there as well. I'm going to read verses 25 through 35. This is God's word that he's given to us. It says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Gracious God in heaven, we confess today that just as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return but water the earth and make it spring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so may your word today not return empty, but may it accomplish all that you purpose in us and through us for our good and for your glory. Amen. All right, so we're here at the end of summer. Uh, Some of you started school last week. Some of you start school tomorrow. I have it on good authority. Uh, Next weekend is Labor Day weekend. Always that classic mark of the end of summer. Maybe you have a getaway plan for that last gasp of summer before the reality of fall hits and new rhythms and new routines happen. And we're wrapping up intentionally this series of uh, sermons about what it means to follow after Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple in God's kingdom? And I think it's a perfect time for us because many of us, as we head into fall, we're beginning to think of what are our routines, what are our rhythms of life going to look like, both individually and for our family as we head into the fall. And I think this message that Luke brings us, that Jesus brings us through Luke's telling, is so helpful for us. Do we want to follow Jesus, and have we counted the cost of what that takes? Here's what I want to talk about today. It's a simple statement. That following Jesus is free, but it will cost you everything. Following Jesus on the road is free, but it will cost you everything. That's what Jesus is trying to say say here at the end of chapter 14. In various ways, he's saying that he must be the priority, the number one priority in your life. He's been talking again and again about what life in his kingdom is and how it's this great gift that comes to us by God's grace the many blessings that are ours as we follow after Jesus. But now he also wants us to be aware that it will cost us everything. He's got to be number one. Well, that's easy to say. What does it look like? What does it look like for Jesus to be the number one priority in your life? There are different ways that we can think about it. Well, one is, do you read the Bible? Is his word the priority truth? in your life? Do you go to church? Do you put yourself around a community of other people where God is number one? And do you serve other people? If if, if Jesus is going to be the priority in your life, you, you have to demonstrate that through your vertical relationship to God, your horizontal relationship with other people. That includes both other Christians and the world that we're called to serve. Your priorities, all of our priorities, become very obvious when we interrogate our lives, when we look at our lives, begin to investigate them and see where we're spending our time and our money and our attention. 
Where are you doing that? You know, I think often we approach God, we approach Jesus with an attitude that essentially says, what's the least that I can do and still be a Christian? What's the least that I can do and and, and still be a member of this church? Jesus is saying the opposite of that. He wants you to count the cost. He's saying, following me is free, but it's going to cost you everything. How do you diagnose what your priorities are? Is Jesus priority number one? Well, what do you talk about? Because what you talk about reveals your priorities. What do you think about? What are you fantasizing about? What are you daydreaming about? What are you organizing your life around? That shows you what your priorities are. And what Jesus is doing in this passage is he is saying to his disciples and he is saying to us today, you need to count the cost if you're going to follow me. And he talks about this in several different ways, but uh, he begins and he uses these really helpful illustrations, right, of what it looks like to count the cost. They're ones that we can understand, even though these are old, right? He says, consider a person building a tower. He must count the cost before he begins construction, right? If you're going to do a renovation of your home, have you counted the cost? Knowing that it's going to cost two times more than they tell you, and it's going to take two times longer than they tell you, right? Are you prepared for that before you start ripping down walls? Count the cost. The other example he gives is of the king going out to war, and maybe that's a little bit harder for us to understand, but But it's not really, right? Because think about a conflict or think about a conversation that you go into and you say, okay, is it worth me entering into this conflict? Knowing the time it's going to take, knowing the energy it's going to take, is it worth it for me to have this conversation? Count the cost. Know what you're getting yourself into. And what what Jesus is saying is, is do the same thing before you follow after me. Following me, it's free, but it'll cost you everything. I had a friend who uh, worked for the Ministry of Young Life, and uh, every summer we would go on camp trips, and uh, on those camp trips, kids, uh, high school kids would hear the gospel. For the first time, they would hear this great invitation to follow after Jesus. And my friend, on the bus ride home from those camps, he would spend the entire bus ride trying to talk kids out of making a commitment to Jesus. Well, that seems odd, right? Isn't that counter-purpose? It was because of this. He wanted them to count the cost. He wanted them to be aware of the decision that they were making. Before you commit your life to following after Jesus, I want to tell you that your parents may not like that. When you start spending time reading the Bible instead of just doing homework and extracurriculars. Your friends might not like it. When you start acting differently because you have made a commitment to follow Jesus, have you counted the cost? That's what Jesus is asking all of us. What, what sort of costs are we talking about? Well, Jesus goes through three different types of costs that we must count, that we must attend to. The first cost is people, right? Look again at verse 26. It says in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
part of the cost that you must count are your relationships. Now, we read this from Jesus' mouth. He says, hate, that's a strong word. And it's rhetorically used here, okay? Jesus is making his point. He wants to underline it, and he uses that word hate. What he's really saying is back to priority. He is saying, you must love all of these things less than you love me. I've got to be first. If you're my disciple, I've got to be first. That's a hard truth, right? But it means when... Jesus is first when your parents say, do you really have to go to church on Sunday afternoon? We've got this party planned for your brother or your cousin or your nephew. Yeah, I got to go to church. Or when your friends say, do you really have to be such a killjoy? Does God really care what you do with your body? Yeah, he does. Or when your husband says, do we really have to give 12%, 15% of what we make to the work of God in the world? And you say, yeah, we do. Because Jesus is the number one priority. And, and this seems so crazy, right? Hate your mother and your father and your sister and your brothers. It seems bananas. But then Jesus comes to the last phrase, and this is where he really presses it home, where he, really, where he relativizes every relationship because he says, even your own self. And doesn't that dig at each one of us? Because we all know that the number one priority in most of our lives, most of the time, is ourselves. And Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you're dethroning yourself from the center of your life. Because he must be first. The cost is people, but the cost is also comfort. And that comes in the next verse, in verse 27. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You want to follow Jesus. It's free but it'll cost you everything. It will cost you your comfort. You see, Jesus is talking here about bearing your cross. He's talking about the shame and the indignity of a cross. He's talking about the suffering of a cross. And what's the opposite of that? Comfort. What most all of us are building our lives around. I, I, um, I caught myself today as we were reading the confession of sin. We said this out loud. Did you, did you catch it? Our obsession with creating a life of constant pleasure. Following Jesus will cost you comfort. Have you counted the cost of your comfort? The verbs used in verse 27 are present tense. That means they're ongoing, they're continual. This isn't something that you count once and then you're done with it. It means that you continue to bear your cross. You continue to bear shame and ridicule and rejection. Because you're following Jesus. And you've counted the cost. There's a great old book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's worth reading. It holds up. 
There's a quote from Bonhoeffer at the, the top of the worship guide today, and it, it talks about this dynamic of how this is free, but it will cost you everything. It's all of grace. But Jesus' call on a life is a call to die. And Bonhoeffer has receipts. He lived it. He was a theologian and a pastor in Germany as Hitler was rising to power. And he came to the United States to study and to learn. And he had every opportunity to stay right here. But he went back to Germany. Because he was following the call of Jesus. He was placed into a a concentration camp. And he was executed five days before that camp was uh, freed by the Allies. The cost of following after Jesus. It will cost you people. It will cost you comfort. And the last thing is that it will cost you your stuff. This we see at the very end of the passage. Jesus in verse 33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And friends, this is, it will cost you the stuff that you have and the stuff that you want to have, right? Because some of you are young and you're like, I don't have much stuff. I'm a student. I just started my first job. But what Jesus is saying here has to do with your heart posture. He's saying it's not just what you have, it's all the stuff that you want to have, all the future selves that you want to be. And you say, I will have made it once I have this, once I have that house, once I have this job, once my bank account is so full. And Jesus says, renounce all of that. And if there isn't anything that is more of an affront to our culture in the late modern West, it is this. I am coming to believe more and more that the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply incompatible with our society and the way that we live. Because we believe that identity and value and meaning comes from the stuff that we have. It does not. It comes from Jesus. You know, we've been talking as a staff, and Harrison mentioned this last week, he talked about this idea of de-churching. It's very popular uh, right now, and I think for good reason. It's stuff that's good for us as pastors who uh, lead churches to know why people are leading the church. But this week, I was thinking about uh, something else. You see, de-churching, de-churching is too safe for us because it allows us to focus on the people who aren't here rather than focusing on ourselves. You know what I'm a lot more concerned about than de-churching? De-Jesusing. The people who are still here in the church. The people like you and me who are here and we've left Jesus. Because it simply costs too much. So Jesus goes through all this and then there's another paragraph that I read. It's kind of a strange paragraph. It's about salt. What is that doing? Well, Jesus is underscoring again the importance of discipleship in this passage. And when he talks about salt, uh, he's using that as a metaphor for discipleship. When he says that salt has lost its taste, tasteless salt equals a useless disciple. 
Salt is you and me. It's how the follower of Jesus ought to be in the world. And I, I want to I dig in here a little bit, uh, partly because I think we miss so much of this metaphor. When you think of salt, you probably think only of one thing, flavor. Jesus talks about that. He's talking about taste. We think about flavor. And so when we hear, well, oh, I gotta, you know, Jesus wants me to be salty, I think we interpret that and we're like, I've got to add a little bit of spark or panache to life. That's my job as a Christian. I'm going to go to a party and I'm going to sparkle with all the salt I have. That's not what Jesus means here. Being, so salt biblically has this rich history. We actually read, we read this really strange passage from 2 Kings 2, right? Grant read it for us. And it's about Elisha, the prophet. And, and he takes salt and he throws it into water. It was a bad spring. And he does that, why? To make the water right, to heal the water. That shows us what the idea of salt was biblically. It had these healing properties. It promoted goodness and growth. That's what salt does. And that's how salt works as a flavoring, right? Salt goes into food, and, and actually you're not just tasting the salt. What salt does is it amplifies the good that's already there. And so you put salt on beans, and beans taste better. They taste more beany. That's what salt does. It amplifies the goodness of God's creation. That's what disciples are supposed to do, as they follow after Jesus. Not just to taste like themselves, but to make everything in life taste better. There's another characteristic of salt. It's a preservative. You, you, you know this, they knew this in Jesus' time. And, and so why, why saltiness? When God made covenants with the people of Israel, he often made those covenants with salt because it's a preservative, and it was meant to speak to the steadfast and enduring uh, um, reality of God's promise. So that's part of the background, too, is Jesus is talking about salt. He's saying, uh, you're supposed to fulfill this long-standing covenant that God has made. So you guys know by now, you're tired of hearing it, that I'm a baker, right? When you bake bread, there are four ingredients— Flour, water, yeast of some kind, and salt. Why salt? Well, salt does a few things. It adds flavor. When you taste bread, you're not tasting salt, hopefully, but you're tasting the different profiles of the flour and the yeast that have combined. Salt also promotes growth in the right way. When you add salt to yeasted dough, it slows down the work of the yeast. That allows more flavor to develop over time. And how does salt work? Think about salt in bread. It works by penetrating all of the dough, by being worked into the dough. Sometimes when I think we hear as Christians, we hear, oh, well, we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. We're a preservative. And we think we're just like a block of salt that should move around in our society and like, hey, I'm salty over here. No, the only way that salt works is by becoming indistinguishable from the world, from the dough. Once the salt has been added to bread dough, it can't be separated again. That is what the life of discipleship in the world is supposed to be like. Salt adds flavor, it preserves, it fertilizes by working into everything. 
that's what it looks like to be a disciple. So this afternoon, said this really simple message, right? Following Jesus is free, but it will cost you everything. Some of you are going, doesn't sound like a very good deal. That's a pretty high price to pay, isn't it? It doesn't make sense. Why would I do that? Well, it doesn't make sense unless we understand the paradox of the gospel. Right? Did you see the paradox of the gospel in that Old Testament passage? Elijah takes salt and throws it into water. What would salt being added to water do? It would make it undrinkable. It would ruin it. Except through the work of God, what seems like it would ruin it makes it beautiful. It's the paradox of the gospel that sends Jesus' son to die so that we might have life and have it to the full. This exchange doesn't make any sense if it costs me everything unless we understand the depths of the gospel and its blessing. And, and let me say this to you. If you're, if you're beginning to count the cost or wondering about counting the cost this afternoon, you're not the first person to do it. And the power of the gospel is that far before any of us ever counts the cost, Jesus has counted the cost. Jesus counted the cost in his incarnation. Philippians 2 verse 6 said that Jesus did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. Jesus has counted the cost and he came to save you and me. Jesus counted the cost again later on as he faced his crucifixion. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he stared down the cross and he said, he pleaded with God, he prayed to him and he said, if there's any, one, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He counted the cost. And he paid it. In his incarnation, in his death for you and me, Christ has counted the cost. And you know what the New Testament says again and again and again? It says to us, to you and me, from our perspective, consider him. Consider Jesus, the one who counted the cost, the one who paid the cost. In all of your calculus, in all of your counting, keep looking at Jesus. Because if you don't do that, it doesn't make any sense. It's just all the things that you're losing, all the people, and all the comfort, and all the stuff. But if we see correctly, we understand that it's all worth it. Because the blessing of the gospel is so good. A pastor friend of mine told me this story a couple weeks ago. It's a story of a man in his church, a young man who had three little boys, and he also had terminal cancer. And he was talking to my friend, he said, I just, I, I don't know what to do. I no longer have the, the strength or the physical capacity to do the things that I, I want to do, to do the things that I ought to do for my boys. 
He couldn't be the person or the dad that he wanted to. He couldn't provide all the stuff. My, 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 my friend said to him, it's okay, all you have to do, all you have to do is die. Die following Jesus. The gospel is that good. And so in his last week of life, this man, one by one, called his three boys into his room as he lay there, unable to move, uh, almost unable to speak. And what did he do? He told him about the free grace and the deep love and the complete sufficiency of Jesus. He died following Jesus. And there is no greater gift that he could ever have given to his sons. Friends, following Jesus is free, but it'll cost you everything. All you have to do is die. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would take these truths and apply them to our hearts and lives. These are hard truths that, uh, that rail against some of the deepest assumptions of our culture, even of our families. Father, I pray that we would be men and women who are willing to count the cost but also men and women who see the glory of the gospel for what it truly is. The eternal blessings and riches that are ours through Christ. And that as he died, so we too would die, that we might be united with him in the newness of life. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.